From Holy Family HTX, an Episcopal church for people without a church, this is the Holy Family Podcast, a collection of ideas about leading a Jesus-centered life. We clearly explore the church's understandings while bringing our own questions, curiosities, and doubts, and we never demand fake agreement. Theological exploration is just better that way. So, let's take a moment of silence as we get ready to contemplate today's ideas. Today's gospel occurs over two days. Here's day one. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him. That's what Jesus Christ is always doing, coming towards us. We have tricked ourselves into thinking that we have to like go out and find him under a rock somewhere, but no, Jesus Christ is always coming closer to us. Jesus Christ is always moving. Jesus is the one who comes to the world. Herbert McCabe puts it this way. He says, the story of Jesus Christ is nothing other than the triune life of God, this eternal communion projected onto our history. He says, in the same way that when a film is projected onto a screen, if the screen is smooth and flat, the film can be seen very clearly. But as soon as the screen is distorted or twisted or in in some kind of way, it can actually distort the image being presented. In this sense, the story of Jesus is the projection of God's eternal triune life onto the mess that we have made of this world. All of the injustices and evil and sin and oppression that we continue, the violence that we continue to dole out to one another, that is the world on which God's eternal love is projected. So when John sees Jesus coming toward him, John, the son of a priest, says, There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that's a weird thing to say to somebody who's coming up to you. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And to just cut right to the chase, what does that mean? In what way does the Lamb of God take away the sin of the world? And frankly, if you're at a church like this one, it's probably because you've heard some of that kind of talk before and it gets warped up into some other kinds of weird theological bad takes and you're like, I don't really know what that means. So let's try to demystify that for a moment. It is really hard for us to get at because so many Gentile Christians like me have badly interpreted Israel's texts. And we have created inaccurate insights into ancient Israel cultic practices of sacrifice. And frankly, the reason we do it is because we're all in service to trying to make theological meaning out of Jesus's death. And we really screw things up. And that makes it really hard for us to actually get in touch 
with some of this language that occurs in the Bible. And so when you're a preacher or a regular Christian, uh, it, it, not a professional one, um, um, you, you have choices to make. It's like, well, that seems kind of weird. I'm just going to ignore it. Or you can just lean into it for a moment and try to wrap your head around it. So I'd rather just, instead of trying to just ignore it and be like, hmm, that's odd. Let's just lean into it for a moment and try to wrap our head around it. Uh, ancient Israel cultic sacrifice was called korban. And all that means is this is going to bring us close. The reason that you did sacrifice in their logic was to bring close. How do we get close? closer with God, which again may seem very bizarre to our mode of operations, but we're trying to figure out how they thought of it. To be with God. There were different ways that this happened. For example, in general expiatory offerings, the sinner did not actually transfer their sin to the sacrifice in the same way that I can open my app and move money out of my checking into my savings. Furthermore, Israel's God was not into accepting the life of the sacrifice in place of the life of the sinner. But lots of Gentile Christians think that's what was going on. That's not what's going on in Israel's understanding of sacrifice. Furthermore, on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, two goats were necessary. The goat who carried the sins of the nation out into the wilderness did not die. It just went away. But what about that other goat that was sacrificed? Yes, it was sacrificed, but the blood was not to cleanse people like Gentile Christians in the year 2023 think. It was not to cleanse the people. Actually, if you read Israel's text closely, it was to cleanse their tabernacle. It was to cleanse the building. Furthermore, and most apropos to today's gospel is the feast Passover. At Passover, a lamb was slain at the temple, but then it was taken home by the family to eat it. The lamb was not for the forgiveness of sins. We often think it. We often think it. It is not for the forgiveness of sins. That's not what Passover is about. Passover is not about forgiveness. Passover is about deliverance from slavery and oppression. Passover is a meal that remembers lamb's blood on doors, which served, use this word at your next cocktail party, apotropaically. Apotropaically is this idea that um, it serves almost kind of like a talisman or a warding off or a protecting, almost kind of like a security system. Apotropaic means that this blood of a lamb in the original Passover story actually protected against death. That's very different than some sort of forgiveness of sins because God is angry. Now, of course, lots of preachers in American Christianity, like me, have overplayed a form of substitutionary atonement back onto these texts. But it appears that the, sca the scapegoat was not killed at Yom Kippur. The Passover lamb was slain for protection against death, not to get forgiveness. And the regular expiatory sacrifices were actually serving as like a bleach for the temple, not the people. Ellen Davis, one of the finest readers of the Hebrew scriptures that I know, diagnoses part of our problem this way. She says that... <laughs> 
We, we Christians, Gentile Christians, typically have theologies that are informed about how we think blood works in the Bible. But we actually have no cultural experience with sacrifice. And we can't even read a book like Leviticus without first doing it through the lens of a book like Hebrews. She says Leviticus is way weirder than we think. She says Leviticus, if you actually read Leviticus, the blood does not stand for death like it does in our world. We see blood and we're like, oh gosh, uh, this is dangerous. Something's about to die. In the logic of Leviticus, blood was not about death. The life is in the blood. To directly quote Leviticus, blood is about life, not death. Now, all of this is to say, Gentile Christians like us in the year 2023 probably have no idea what John the Baptist meant when he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We probably have no idea. In fact, and I didn't know this until I did the research for it this week, there is no other place in the Bible where that precise phrase, Lamb of God, is used. It does not exist anywhere else in the Bible. You'd think it would, but it doesn't. Nowhere else. Just John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, sure, there are other lambs in the Bible, but Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is God's Lamb, the one who the Father goes and searches for into the far country of death. Jesus is the Lamb of God. When he goes to the temple in John chapter 2, Jesus drives out all of the temples who were ostensibly there to be sacrificed. And he said, you can go away. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Passover Lamb of God whose death does not atone for sin and it's not a sacrifice of expiation in John's gospel. That's not actually how John writes it. Scholar John Ashton says that in John's gospel, the death of Jesus is not sacrificial. It is, and here's your cocktail word again, apotropaic. Meaning what? Jesus' blood, which is his life. Jesus' life wards off, protects all of humanity from death. Not God the Father. You see the distinction? God the Father sends Jesus to ward off death, to protect us from death. And if you actually look at the words, which is a thing you ought to do, and not, you know, and not just like take my word for it, John's gospel actually describes Jesus' death in particular ways. In chapter six, Jesus' death is for the life of the world. In chapter 10, his death is for the sheep. In chapter 11, it is for Israel and all of the children of God. In chapter 15, it is the greatest act of love where you lay down your life for your friends, which means we are no longer creatures who are just here to serve God. We have been transformed into friends of God. God the Father is not out to get us. God loves us. Jesus is described as the Passover lamb. He lays down his life 
for the life of the world, so that we are then given the heavenly bread, his flesh, to eat. It's the logic of Passover. Yes, there is a lamb that is slain, but it is taken and transformed into a meal. What do you think we do when we come to this altar every week? It is the flesh. It is turned into a meal so that we can what? Korban. Be close. Be with. Communion. Now, of course, let's be real. There are others, frankly, even in the New Testament, who will try to understand Jesus' death as some sort of atoning for sin. But that's not the text that got read today. If you're going to deal with the text that actually gets read, you have to deal with the text that's read. In today's gospel, the Lamb of God comes to take away the sin of the world because of the love that God has for the world. I mean, to quote the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Do you remember the next verse? God did not send the son into the world to judge the world. God sent the Son into the world so that the world might be saved through Him, liberated through Him, rescued through Him, delivered through Him. People. And in chapter 12, Jesus says, You know, if there are people who hear my words and don't keep them, I don't judge them. I didn't come to judge, I came to save. John Baer writes this, it is precisely this love shown in this way that has liberated human beings from the condition of being servants to that of being friends, members of God's household, enthroned in the temple alongside Jesus. And Jesus's commandment is now simply love one another in the same way that I have loved you. So that's day one. Here's day two. The next day, John sees Jesus walking by again, always on the move. And he says, there's the lamb. Now, some of John's friends hear this, and so they go, oh, that's, that's the guy. So they get up and they start following Jesus. And perhaps that's what you have come to do today. You've heard rumors of Jesus. You've heard rumors of a life with God. Well, Jesus Christ turns. The Lamb of God turns and asks a question. Isn't it amazing? We always think that we're the ones who have to bring questions to God, but when the Lamb of God speaks, the Lamb starts asking questions. Here's a question from the Lamb of God. What are you looking for? That's one that we actually ought to like really sit with and interrogate. Do I even really know what I'm looking for? I wonder, what are you looking for? Security? Peace? Patience? Assurance that you're okay? And that eventually it's going to be all right? Provision? A break? A breakup? support, encouragement, hope. 
I don't know how you would respond to the Lamb of God's question, to you, what are you looking for? But I do know how the two following the Lamb that day responded. They stammer out, um, teacher, where are you staying? We want to know where you're going to be. And the Lamb of God simply responds by saying, come and see. Because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is always on the move and will never stay put. That's the invitation of Epiphany. You have to actually come along and keep up with what Jesus Christ is doing in the world. We are always looking for Jesus' location so that we know where to find him in case we need to get to him. And instead, we are invited to come and see all of the ways that Jesus is going out into the world to show it just how deeply loved it has always been by God. You can find more resources to help you lead a Jesus-centered life at holyfamilyhtx.org. Again, it's holyfamilyhtx.org.